0: This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at
1: www.sunsetpres.org.
0: Good morning, everyone. Can you believe we are already here to December? We have already made it to Acts chapter 10. And that means that this is our last teaching session of the fall winter session. So give yourself a pat on the back. I know that um, the studies have been pretty intense this uh, whole term, but um, good for you for making it this far and um, well done. So as we go into Acts chapter 10, we have, thankfully, this time we have one big story to concentrate on, not a couple of different ones. Um, and most of the action takes place in, um, the city of Caesarea, but before I get into diving into background details, how about I pray too? Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the story today, we thank you for the lesson and all of the, um, the fascinating details that um, have come out of it. Um, I pray for this morning, God, that you would help me, for us to focus, um, to be able to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was uh, beginning to say, Cornelius is the main character of the hour, him and Peter. And Cornelius is a centurion of the Italian cohort in the town of Caesarea. And right away, we see that the focus of this story is not just on traditional Israel. Jewish themes. Um, Caesarea is a town obviously named after Caesar. It was an impressive port city designed by Herod and named after Caesar. And it was also a Roman garrison. So it's obviously a very Roman kind of city. In fact, I kind of wonder, even it was a great city of the day, I wonder how the Jews felt about it. If they were proud of this great port or if they kind of saw it as a little bit of a just a reminder that they were no longer their own national people. Um, Cornelius, is mentioned, he's a centurion of the Italian cohort. Centurions, um, we've seen them before in the New Testament. There was the centurions present at Jesus' crucifixion. There was the one that Jesus commended for his faith. A centurion was a soldier who was over 100 men. And a cohort was comprised of about 600 men. But when you had auxiliary forces, it could be about 1,000. And 10 cohorts... Equal a legion. So just to kind of keep that in context. So Cornelius wasn't like the super general over the army, but he uh, did have a, a command of um, significant um, prestige. I guess he's over a hundred men and his um, salary as such made him fairly wealthy con- considered to um, the other people of, of the day. He's identified in the text as pretty much a god fearer and that is someone who's a Gentile, who worships a Hebrew God, but he hasn't yet fully converted to Judaism by circumcision. So he probably attended synagogue, but he kind of sat in the back as an observer because he wasn't circumcised yet, he wasn't fully Jewish. But he prayed um, several times a day, and the text also says that he lived out that faith by giving alms to the poor. Now, Peter, um, at this time, is staying with us another guy named Simon. Simon Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner. And as our um, study pointed out, um, a Tanner is someone who works with leather. And so he would have been ritually unclean a lot of the time due to his profession because he was handling um, dead bodies of animals. Um, But actually, this wasn't quite as important um, for him because he didn't live in Jerusalem. He wasn't in proximity to the temple. Um, But we kind of see already there's a huge theme throughout this story, a thread of this idea of being ritually clean or unclean. And um, so to kind of kick off our study, I thought I'd play um, a beginning of a video from thebibleproject.com, and it's about holiness. And it has a lot to say about um, this idea about being clean or unclean or pure. Um, Those are all kind of the same kind of words. So if we could hit that video, we're going to watch the beginning of that.
2: You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So god is holy because he's morally perfect yeah that is part of it
1: but in the bible the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich what it's really describing is how god is the creative force behind the whole universe he's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life and so all these abilities they make god utterly unique which is the meaning of the word holy so a helpful way to think about god's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system. And it's really powerful It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further, in that the whole area around
2: the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this
2: paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually
1: that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous.
2: Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible,
1: the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. The idea of this is even...
0: Thank you. So what I love about that video is it kind of um, gives us a good overview of what it means to be pure or impure in the ritual sense of the Mosaic Law. Um, and as we can see, it isn't necessarily a sin to be unclean, but it's a sin to go into God's presence, the temple, when you're unclean. And so, the commands surrounding this idea about being ritually and unclean, or ritually clean or unclean, they serve the Israelites both practical and symbolic functions. Now, for those of us in the modern day who have an understanding, modern understanding of um, germs and bacteria and things like that, when you read through these laws, it, you can't help but notice that... Um, There's a lot of health benefits for following these rules. Um, So like if you have a contagious skin disease, you basically have to go quarantine for a little while until you can prove that you're well again. Um, You need to wash your hands before eating. You have to bury dead people quickly. You're not allowed to touch dead things. And if you do, again, you have to be like quarantined for a little while. Um, And even some of the things like the animals that are listed as unclean, many of them, like pork, are highly prone to parasites, um, especially in a day and age before refrigeration. Um, And there's, like, I read um, in some of my research, I found that um, once a year before Passover, the Jews are commanded to severely, I mean, to entirely sweep their houses out to remove every speck of yeast, which did serve a symbolic um, purpose of symbolizing um, sin or evil. But basically, they have to throw away all their old food and do this white-glove test of your house. And the timing of this is in spring, just when most of your winter stores of food are really starting to go bad, just at the time when rats are a real problem. Um, So it turns out that during the Middle Ages, some Jewish communities actually escaped the bubonic plague. Um, probably because the whole community was getting together and cleaning out their house. And so removing anything that, that rats would end up wanting to feed on. And sadly, this was leading to the suspicion in the Middle Ages that Jews were starting the plague. <laughs> but it really was because they were following God's commands about um, this ritual purity kind of things. Um, One other little thing that I mean kind of pops to mind in modern times, there's um, a lot of feminists who are offended by the fact that a menstruating woman is considered unclean, um, thinking that this insinuates that there's something wrong with normal bodily functions of being a woman. But the truth is, it it wasn't a gender-specific thing. Male bodily fluids got the same kind of treatment, um, put them into a state of being ritually unclean. So it really wasn't a gender issue, it was more about bodily fluids. And when you think about it again from today's modern perspective, you kind of think, well, you know, I don't necessarily want to live in a world where everyone's just totally fine with bodily fluids and not washing their hands and things like that. That's kind of okay with me. So the question is, were these rules just about public health? Um, Because the Israelites back in Moses' day really didn't have a whole lot of comprehension about the same reasons that we would say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea to follow those things. Um, symbolically, these rules reminded them of who God was, because as the video says, God is the source of life and goodness, and he's holy and holy means set apart or different. So he's set apart from all things having to do with sin and death. And it reminds them of who they are. As God's people, they're chosen. They are holy and set apart. And so that means it's both appropriate and necessary for them to behave in unique ways. Especially if they're going to be in God's presence. So all of this worked maybe a little bit too well. It gave the Jews a sense of identity, but unfortunately, it sometimes also gave them sort of an air of superiority, an idea that the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus refutes many times. And as we go into our story here, um, it begins with the story of Cornelius, an introduction about him and the fact that as he's praying— one day, about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, which was a set time of prayer for Jews in that day, he has this vision of an angel of God coming to him and saying, um, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Which to our ears sounds really formal and kind of strange, but um, as my study Bible says, it's, it's sacrificial language. You know, this idea of that's what... Um, the cultures of that day, most of their worship was centered around sacrifice, making sacrifices, burning incense, pouring libations, all of these things. And those things are supposed to rise up to God, and, and he kind of notices them. So the angel is speaking to him in a way that he's, he's going to understand. Um, what you've done has risen up as a memorial before God, and it indicates that God's favor is turned towards him. Now, again, when you remember in the Old Testament, whenever it says God remembers someone, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten them and now they've suddenly come to mind. Rather, it indicates that God has determined to act on their behalf. Like someone has remembered me in their will, right? God remembers them. He's going to act on Cornelius' behalf and his favor has turned towards him. So he gives Cornelius these instructions to send some soldiers to go find this man named Peter and hear what he has to say. So he obeys. And at the same time, the next day, as they're approaching there, all of a sudden, Peter just happens to be on the roof of his house praying. And all of a sudden, he decides, oh, I'm hungry. I want to get some food. So he sends someone down to get him food. And I love how God speaks into what's going on for him right at that moment, right? He's hungry, and all of a sudden he has this, he goes into this trance, and he sees this vision of the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and a voice comes and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So this happens three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter is really kind of confused by this. Um, If you understand some of the symbolism of things, you can figure, okay, yeah, the four-cornered sheet, it's, it's the corners of the earth and all the creatures inside of it. And okay, what God has made clean, don't call common. He's thinking, what on earth does that mean? I'm not sure that Peter is necessarily confused about the literal sort of interpretation of that. Because in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, there's this story where um, Jesus is with his disciples and the Pharisees get really offended because they notice some of Jesus's disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And they point it out with a lot of derision. And Jesus stands up for them and says, look, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. And later on, Peter goes, Jesus, can you please explain this? I'm not, I'm not sure quite what you mean. And Jesus says, well, what you put into your mouth goes into your stomach. It doesn't go into your heart. It passes through your body, right? The things, the evil things that come out of your mouth, the words, the thoughts, they come from your heart. Things like murder and adultery and slander and all of those kind of things. Those are the evil things that defile you. And not eating with unwashed hands. So, Peter kind of had that teaching from Jesus in his tool belt, right? But I think he's wondering, I was just hungry, and then I have this, tr- what are you telling me, God? What does this have to do with what's going on right now? And as he's thinking about that, all of a sudden, these, um, these messengers from Cornelius are show up downstairs, and it's kind of funny, too, because it's like the Holy Spirit has to nudge him and go, psst, Peter. Peter. Peter, pay attention. There's three guys down there. You need to go downstairs. And whereas, you know, first God speaks to him in this very mysterious vision sort of way, then he's very, very specific with words. Hey, Peter, go downstairs and go with these guys. You know, it's like, why couldn't you be that literal at the beginning? But okay. So Peter's just like, okay, all right. So he goes downstairs. He meets the guys, and he realizes, oh, okay, that's what this vision about. Okay, I need to be going with them. So Peter goes with the men, he meets Cornelius, and as he um, reaches him, Cornelius kind of tells him, okay, so four days around, this is what happened to me with the vision, and and at Peter first thinks, um, Cornelius is expecting them, and he, at first he falls down at his feet and, and tries to worship Peter, and Peter's like, nope, nope, stand up, I'm, I'm a man too. Um, and, and Peter has a hint of what's going on, right? Because he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for you to associate with anyone or visit someone from another nation, but God has already shown me that I'm not supposed to call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So why am I here? And they have this moment of confusion because Cornelius shares his vision and he goes, I, I don't really know why you're here, but I know you're supposed to tell me something and I know I'm supposed to listen. And that's when Peter all of a sudden, I love in verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth. Peter opening his mouth. When does <laughs> that happen sometimes, right? But anyway, Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And from there, he gives this very basic kind of shortened version of the gospel. And he even kind of assumes that they may have known some of the events about Jesus at the time. He says, as you know, this has been happening in Jerusalem. But he figures these people don't know the significance of what's been going on. So he gives them the shortened kind of version about who Jesus is and what Jesus's death and resurrection means. And he bears witness to him. And right at the end, as he's wrapping up, he goes, to, all, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter is still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. I love how it's like, right as, it's almost as if, right as Peter is saying, everyone who believes in him, that God comes through with this confirmation. Everyone who believes in him is gonna receive, wait, yeah, God just comes in and confirms that with this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. There's this visible and audible confirmation that because everyone who's there begins speaking in tongues and praising God, and I wonder there too um, whether Peter's companions also experienced that, that falling of the Holy Spirit so that everyone present was all praising God together. Um, or whether it was just them. either way, um, it says that they started to have the same kind of experience, the same experience that the Jews had at Pentecost. And Peter comes to this, you know, shocking conclusion that he realizes that, um, that What he's been saying is really true, right? Everyone who believes in Jesus, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, they receive forgiveness of sins through the name of Jesus. And so he goes, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they stay with him for some days. So as we look over the story... Luke includes this story because it's a pivotal point in the early church. Prior to this moment, Christianity as such is basically a subset of the Jewish faith. The only difference between the two is that Peter and the Christians are interpreting Jesus as the Messiah, but the other Jews disagree on that assessment. In the eyes of Rome, in the eyes of the outside world for the next hundred or so years— There was little to no difference between Jewish followers of Jesus and Jewish followers of Gamaliel or John the Baptist or one of the Maccabee Zealots. It didn't even really matter to them that the apostles were calling Jesus the son of God because in their day and age, Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus called themselves son of God too. They thought, you know, this is it was kind of confusing to the Romans because it was the same language that they used about their own leaders. And you can see then why later on they got really confused thinking that here Jesus is trying to be the next Alexander the Great or a Caesar Caesar Augustus, who are bringing the the peace, the Roman peace, Pax Romana. You know, when he's talking to them about, oh, yeah, the peace through Jesus Christ. Well, the Romans weren't familiar with that, they were familiar with the Pax Romana which is basically, I've subjugated all these peoples and so there's no more fighting. That's the kind of peace that they knew. The apostles saw themselves still primarily as Jews too. Jews who were just on the right track, right? Even if they're no longer participating in temple sacrifices, they were still praying and worshiping God in the temple. They were participating in synagogue discussions and they were living out their normal Jewish lives. So it would have made sense that even if they'd found converts in the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch, they would have assumed that in order to follow the Jewish Messiah, you needed to be a Jew. In this case, Cornelius isn't a pagan worshiper of Zeus. He is a God-fearer. But he hasn't yet fully entered into the Jewish life as a circumcised proselyte. So Peter and the other Jewish believers are actually really shocked when God unmistakably confirms his and his family's entrance into the household of God. What is happening, they're thinking. The Messiah came to save his people, God's people, the Jews. What God is showing here, though, is that all people are God's people. So the good news is for Gentiles as well. So what can we learn from this story today? Well, number one, God shows favor, not favoritism. Favoritism is when I treat someone differently because they're better than other people in my eyes. They occupy this special class of people. And it leads to the conclusion that we can earn God's approval or somehow channel or use his favor for our purposes. This was a huge tenet of ancient pagan idolatry. They used sacrifices and rituals and libations to earn the approval and the aid of their gods. And sad to say, but Jews kind of around Jesus' time were getting into that mindset of saying, well, we are descendants of Abraham. You know, it doesn't really matter what we're doing, if we're following you, because we occupy this special class. We are descendants of Abraham that makes us special and set apart. Now, in contrast, favor is the spirit of yes. Favor is when God looks upon someone with delight and he acts on their behalf. He lends his divine divine power to their circumstances and abilities, and it results in something measurably and unexpectedly beyond what that person could have achieved on their own. And we see it all through the scriptures, don't we? We see it in Jacob, in Joseph, in Samuel, in Solomon, in Daniel, even in Jesus, Many of these people, they lived exemplary lives, but sometimes, like Jacob and Solomon, their lives weren't all that exemplary. But in their hearts, they valued and they prized God, and God responded accordingly. Now, God's favor didn't mean that they never encountered difficulty. Joseph's life does not sound (laughs) until the end when he's finally raised up to be the right hand of Pharaoh. Joseph's life is full of difficulty. But What happens is even though they did encounter difficulty, God turned it around for good. God was using their life for his purposes. And in this case, God knew Cornelius. God heard his prayers, he saw his deeds, and he acted not only on Cornelius' behalf, but on the behalf of Gentiles everywhere. He brings about a miraculous introduction that would open the doors for Gentiles everywhere to hear the gospel and be welcomed into the church as equals. Have you ever noticed this, that unlike good fortune or, you know, someone who says, oh, hashtag blessed, (laughs) look at all the great things that I've got going on in my life. I'm so blessed. When a person's life truly displays the hallmarks of God's favor, it doesn't just benefit them. God blessed Abraham so he could be a blessing to the world, Um, When he blessed Joseph and raised him up to be the right hand of Pharaoh, he did it in a way that was saving Egypt and his family and all the surrounding peoples from famine. In Moses' case, um, even from infancy, they say, the midwives could tell he was a special baby. There was something, something special, something different about him. And God saved him. But he did it so that he could save his entire people through Moses. And so on and so forth. Just about every one of these cases, you'll notice that God blesses them. He has his favor on them. And somehow God also uses it to bless other people through them. This leads us to our second point. God chose Israel as he chooses us. Not because we're so good, but because of how good God is. Now each and every person has an intrinsic worth because they're made in the image of God. They're unique, they have purpose and value, but often we feel like this isn't enough. We feel like we need to prove that we're somebody, and to do that, we do that by comparing ourselves to others. And I don't need to give you any examples here, do I? Because you know how we do this. We say, well, I'm not as good as her, but I'm definitely better than her, and I will never be as bad as her, so that's just awesome. So I feel secure because of that. And without even realizing it, we've actually put our hope in favoritism. And this comes comes to light when one day something bad happens to us that wasn't supposed to. Like it would have been okay if it happened to someone else, but to us, it's a big shocker. Or what happens when something good happens to someone else that in our estimate didn't deserve it? You know, that guy should not have gotten that promotion because I work twice as hard as he does. I'm a better person. I don't understand why God would bless him with that and not me. When we realize this about ourselves, people generally have two reactions. Either they're offended or they're liberated. When we rely on favoritism, we close ourselves off and we distance ourselves from others. We want to maintain that distinction, that separation that makes us feel special. Because we assume that it's that separation that gives us worth. So if you take away the separation, if you push me out of first class and bump me back down to economy seating, you threaten my sense of value. But did you catch what what God told Peter? What God has made clean. In the case of the Jews, it wasn't the rituals, the circumcision, the lifestyle that made them holy. God did. God set them apart. God said, I've made you my special inheritance. Not because of anything that they had done or any special characteristics on their part, but because he wanted to. And so the rituals, the circumcision, the whole Jewish lifestyle was a sign. It was an outward manifestation of an identity that God had given them. And the same is still true for us as Christians, right? It's not our righteousness that earns us favor with God. It is the righteousness of Jesus that is given to us. So Jesus could say truthfully that God could make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. And you can be offended by that. Or you can be humbled and liberated. Because you'll never, ever have to rely on your own strength and abilities to try to win the heart of God. Instead, you can rely on the unchanging and unchangeable goodness of God. Finally, and this is a sobering reality, when we show favoritism, we show a fundamental lack of understanding for who God is and what the gospel is all about. So with that, I'd like to finish watching the rest of this video because I think it um, shows who God is um, really, really well.
1: Bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to. That's okay.
0: 255 is right where it's at. Perfect. Thank you.
1: there this idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah and he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence he's totally
2: terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules he shouldn't even be in there and he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally.
1: So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for.
2: So this burning coal somehow
1: makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh
2: and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean?
1: So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their
2: bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right.
1: And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And So this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water
2: flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. Where is this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision
1: about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back
2: to life. We believe the Bible is one complete narrative, so we're making these videos to trace. a.
0: I love how this video ends with the imagery of water, because it's in the waters of baptism that our story ends today. Now, Cornelius and his household experienced the God-given baptism of the Holy Spirit, and after that, Peter says, who can deny them the waters of baptism? You and I might make the mistake of saying, isn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit more important than the baptism of water? God clearly accepts them, so what's the point? As the ESV study Bible explains, being baptized with water into the name of Jesus means you're taking the name of Jesus upon yourself. And since a name represented a person's entire character, you're also taking on the character of Jesus, committing to be a representative for him for your life. Cornelius believed, and he saved, and God confirms it with the Holy Spirit. But water baptism is still important because it's this public demonstration that Cornelius and his family had taken upon themselves the name of Jesus and were now recognized members of the household of God. God clearly intended the nation of Israel to be different than its neighbors, a peculiar people whose differences in how they lived demonstrated to the world that they served a God like no other. But by the time of Jesus, many very well-intentioned Jews were using these differences to separate and shut themselves off from the rest of the world so that they could keep their purity and their special status unsullied by anything or anyone else that was unclean. And as the list of contaminants got longer and longer, their world became smaller and walled off to more and more people. And they forgot all about their call to be a light and a blessing to the Gentile world. As the world we live in continues to grow darker, do we find ourselves in that same situation, tempted to shut the darkness out, to hide the light we bear in the name of self-preservation, to accept the blessings and favor of God, but refuse to share them with others? When we do this, we find ourselves turning inward, growing smaller until the light of love and grace within us barely has enough oxygen to survive. In contrast, the kind of God wants for us to live is one that grows bigger and stronger in size and influence. This kind of life is boldly unafraid because it knows its source and it knows its power. Think about that. It knows its source and it knows its power. It's as generous and extravagant as a God who offers it and it's free to anyone who believes in Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for that truth. Thank you, God, as we sit here as Gentile believers, all these years later, we thank you, God, for the story of Cornelius because it was his conversion, um, his acceptance, the acceptance of his conversion by Peter and the witnesses that day that opened the door for us to be able to be Christians today. We thank you, God, for the kind of God you are. We thank you for. opening up our eyes today to see that the kind of life that you want us to live is one that doesn't grow smaller and contained and try to keep ourselves pure, but it's one God that you offer the hope because our source of our purity is from you, and it's, it's the kind that can move out and help change the world. So God, we pray that, I pray that you would give us um, a deeper sense of that, that you would fill us with boldness, fill us with your Holy Spirit today and throughout this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.